Turn in your Bibles to Luke 14. Look at the very last section of this chapter, from verses 25 to 35. Most churches these days are consumed with the desire to grow big. Success is measured in attendance figures, and we want to be successful. Indeed, this is the day of the mega church, is it not? Thousands and thousands of people in churches. And in a sense, that's an admirable desire. Don't we want to see more people following Christ? If not, something's wrong with us. We don't tell the truth if we say, oh, it doesn't matter to us, numbers don't matter. I admit I'm delighted when I see the chapel full and growing. But in our text this morning, strangely, Jesus already had a multitude of people following him. But he was not impressed. In fact, he turned to them and challenged them with language that was bound to drive some of them away. What was he doing? His words sound strange to our ears, for rather than making it easier to follow him, he seemed to be making it harder. You see, even back then, Jesus was seeking disciples, not statistics. And he still is. Let's consider what he said and how it applies to us. Luke 14, picking up with verse 25, let me read. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not sure, if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is, neither, it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a difficult passage, and it's a, an unusual passage. It sounds strange to us. But I think there are three truths that we ought to learn from this. The first is this. Don't follow Jesus without counting the cost. Do not follow Jesus without counting the cost. 
In the first little parable Jesus tells here, he indicates that his plan, his agenda, is so great and so costly that a person will be foolish to follow him without first considering the implications. Don't follow me, he says, without first counting the cost. The illustration is found in verses 28 to 30. Jesus says that the decision to follow him is like the decision to build something. It demands careful planning and cost projection. Otherwise, you may get the structure half-built and find that you don't have the money to finish. Now, this is such an, uh, an obvious truth. It hardly needs to be explained. Every one of us who has ever launched into any kind of building project got some estimate in advance and did some calculation of whether or not we had that kind of money to complete it. And that's Jesus' point. Such planning is assumed. Only a fool would start without planning. We would mock such an impulsive person. But interestingly, there are such people. One only has to drive around and you'll see a house here and there that's half completed and now boarded up. Or you'll see a business that started up, it seems only last week, and shut down already. People who had great dreams and assumed they could do anything, but did not have what it took to complete what they started. In the same way, Jesus says, don't you begin to follow me without first counting the cost. You see, we humans have a compulsion to build things. Almost none of us is... Uh, content to just work our job and pay our bills until we die. We, we would like to have something that we do that's worthwhile, that's lasting, pursue some cause bigger than ourselves, leave some mark on the world, uh, accomplish something more important than just put in our 70 years of time and then die. And Jesus is engaged in the most impressive building project ever undertaken in the history of the world. He says, I will build my church and the very gates of hell cannot withstand it. His apostle Paul explained that the foundation has been poured by Christ himself, so we need to be really careful what we build on that foundation. His apostle Peter further explained what kind of structure he's building. It will be a temple in which God himself lives. A temple not made out of mortar and brick, however. A temple made out of living stones. People's lives fit together and filled with God's presence. Now that is a building. It's the ultimate cause. This is the perfect project. This is an eternal legacy. One involving people from the whole world. One commissioned by God himself and for him, one contracted by no one less than the Messiah himself. No wonder multitudes follow Jesus. When he's doing, what he's doing is exciting. It's the greatest project on earth. But rather than being elated at such a following, Jesus challenged them. And he challenges us. 
you wouldn't even begin to build a shed out in your garden without counting the cost. You better not sign up with me to build this bigger-than-life temple without figuring out what it will cost you. Here Jesus is addressing those of us who have romantic notions about being a Christian, about what it is to be Christ's disciple. He knows that this massive project has claimed thousands of lives over hundreds of years. It is no joyride. Even in the best of times, it is work. It is hard work to follow Jesus, to be a, a disciple of Christ, to be a Christian, means to be committed to this project. There's no, there are no spectators. There are no bleachers set up to watch. If you would follow him, you wear your work clothes, you leave your fishing pole at home, it's not a vacation. Don't even begin to follow Christ without first counting the cost. Well, perhaps by now you have a second thought. You say, well, maybe I won't get into this so much after all. Uh, maybe I'll just forget about this whole Christian thing. Wait a minute. Jesus has another parable to teach us. Verse 31 and 32. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. That brings us to our second point. Don't refuse Jesus without counting the cost. Don't follow Jesus without counting the cost, but don't refuse Jesus without counting the cost. Here the decision whether or not to follow Christ focuses on the negative side. Perhaps I ought not to follow. Perhaps I'll just play it safe and say no. Decline his offer of discipleship. Oh, but Jesus says, wait a minute, there's a cost to that too. Deciding whether to follow Jesus is like being a king with an army, being threatened by a, another king with an army twice as big. Now when thinking about building a tower, the decision is optional. If I have enough money to build it, I just build it. If I don't, I don't. It doesn't really matter. But when you're threatened by a king with an army twice as big as yours, there's a different kind of urgency to the situation. The options are much more limited now. We can fight and risk losing, or we can surrender and accept servitude. Here, too, one must count the cost. What are my chances of winning if I fight? At what cost could I fight this war? What are the terms of surrender if I want to surrender? This is the game of warship diplomacy that nations play. So what does this have to do with following Jesus, really? Well, Jesus is that great king with massive power. He himself said, all authority on hev in heaven and on earth is given to me. 
His title, Son of Man, which sounds so meek and gentle to us, is instead a claim to the right to rule. It's taken from Daniel 7, where it says of the Son of Man, I quote, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Indeed, the New Testament says of the risen Christ, he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Oh, make no mistake, Jesus is the great king. Meanwhile, here we are with our meager little forces, our few resources, our homemade plans, our great dreams of success with whatever means we can muster to do what we please. But Jesus, the great king, comes to us and says, I want you to surrender and become my subjects. Our first tendency is to say, hey, wait, I'm not at war with you. I mean, just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone, okay? But he sees it differently. You see, the great king owns everything. He's the designer, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of everything in this universe. Then we, his creatures, whom he made for his own purposes, we come along and decide we're going to use his stuff for ourselves. For our plans and our pleasure and our purposes. All of which do not necessarily include him. We breathe his air. We eat his food. We grow our crops on, in his land. We use up the energy he provides our bodies to amass wealth for ourselves from his resources. And then we attach our name to it and claim the right to do with it whatever we please and throw a party on his front yard. Not surprisingly, he sees that as treason. Isn't that what foreign spies do? They come into our country and enjoy the freedoms of this land and suck up the greatness of the wealth and bask in the openness of our society, all for the purpose of working against us, using everything we've provided to advance the goals of our enemies. And we consider that treason. And Christ considers it treason, too. And so Christ Jesus, the great king, confronts us with our meager little resources and says, you surrender and follow me. But before you decide, you'd better count the cost of refusing this king. For he considers such refusal treason. Don't build without counting the cost. Don't refuse to follow the king without counting the cost. So what's the cost? What's the cost of building with Christ? What are the, what's the cost of surrendering to Christ? Well, interestingly, it's exactly the same. Which brings us to our third point. Following Jesus costs everything we have. Following Jesus costs everything we have. 
This truth is mind-boggling. I tell you, it's disturbing to me to even preach this, but that's what the text says. There's no question about what Jesus said here. He did not speak this in a parable. He said it in plain language, openly and, and very explicitly. The key phrase here is the phrase, you cannot be my disciple. It's used three times. Verse 27, verse 26, verse 27, verse 33. It defines the cost in three ways. It's not some inflated cost. This is the everyday, never gets any cheaper cost. Without paying this price, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. You may call yourself a Christian, but you're wrong. He does not claim you. So what's the cost? Three things. Following Jesus costs you your closest relationships. That's what it says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus uses a really hot word here. Hate. To make the point that no one no relationship can even be in the same league as our relationship to him. Compared to our loyalty and love of Christ, the most precious, intimate human relationships must seem like hatred in comparison. Now how can he demand this? Because he's God the Son. And this is what God's law has always said. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Following Jesus costs everything we have in terms of our dearest relationships. A few of you know this cost already from your personal experience. Some of you follow Christ today at the cost of having been rejected by your family or friends. Some of you have endured open hostility by people who used to be close to you but are no longer because you are Christian. To you I say don't turn back. Don't think something strange has happened to you. This is the cost of discipleship. But most of us need to consider this cost more carefully. We are so often paralyzed by fear of what people will think, especially people dear to us. But Jesus calls us to abandon our commitment to the approval of other people and follow him. And sometimes that will mean the loss of close relationships, either because of their disapproval or because of the reality that serving the Lord takes us away somewhere, from, away from home. But if we are unwilling to put Christ first in front of every other relationship, he says, you cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus costs every relationship we have. Second thing about the cost. Following Jesus costs your commitment to self. Your commitment to self. 
That's what we read in verse 27. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said the same thing. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, when a man took up a cross and went with the Roman soldiers, it was a one-way, single-purpose trip. His whole life, everything about him, everything he wanted, everything he served, all the things that he tried to pursue, his own self-interest, were all gone. He was going to die. And that's the degree of self-denial that Christ requires of us. It is if we are going to our own execution every day. Our commitment to self ends. Now this is in stark contrast with the mentality of the world around us. Where we are told constantly that we have the right to self-expression and self-fulfillment and self-realization. Indeed, there is a pseudo-Christianity that joins in that chorus promoting self, as if God's greatest goal was our self-esteem, as if God would never require anything of us that we didn't think was good. But Jesus says that's an illusion. That is a way that leads to destruction. Instead, it is in dying to self that we find life. Jesus said in another place, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, it's impossible to be a disciple of Jesus and serve self at the same time. For me to call Jesus Lord means I'm identifying myself as his slave and I have to obey without questioning. For me to call him king means I'm identifying myself as his subject and I must follow his orders. For me to call him savior means I'm saying I'm hopelessly lost and I'm crying out to him for mercy. Following Jesus costs everything we have beginning with our self-interest. Third way Jesus defines this. Following Jesus costs all your possessions. All your possessions. That's what we read in verse 33. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Oh, here things get kind of sticky, don't they? Jesus declares that to follow him, you must bring everything you own with you. He doesn't ask for 10%, as we've come to expect. He wants 100%. Did I read that right? Uh-huh. The cost of following Jesus is your paycheck and your car and your savings account and your house and your business and your time and your energy and your days and your years and your plans, and your hopes, and your dreams, and your retirement, and your investments, and the strength of your youth, and your golden years. Everything 
you have. Does that mean God wants you to sell your house and give it to the church? It might. If there's such a need. Barnabas did that, remember? About Acts chapter 4, maybe? More likely it means that God wants you to give him your house and then live in it as his caretaker, using it for his purposes, not yours. And the same thing applies to all the rest of your possessions. The point is, the choice is his, not ours. Following Jesus costs all our possessions. That's the point of a little chorus I learned years ago. I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I am, everything I'm not, I'm yours. Following Jesus costs everything you have. Wow. Talk about sticker shock. Why would anyone follow Jesus? The cost of discipleship is so consuming. Why? Three reasons. First, because he is the Messiah who is building a whole new world, the perfect world that will last for all of eternity. That dream has eluded uh, politicians and social planners throughout history, but Christ has proven that no one can thwart his plans, even by putting him to death, he only rose from the dead. Now, if you knew that such a project was guaranteed success, would you not invest everything you own in that? Why, it would be the smartest move you could make. And so Jesus invites us to labor as his disciples, but only if we believe in what he's doing enough to invest everything. The second reason to follow, because he is the great king. He will be victorious whether we follow him or not. The only difference is where will we end up? Reigning with him in glory or crushed under his holy wrath and defeat? But the outcome is not uncertain. He is the king. And third, we follow because to do anything else denies our faith. We didn't talk about verse 34, about salt losing its saltiness. That's a difficult verse, which is hard for us to understand because we have salt that's very refined and it does not ever lose its saltiness. But the point of it all is rather simple. If salt isn't salty, well then what is it? Why should it still be called salt? So it is with the followers of Christ Jesus. If followers don't follow, why should they be called followers of Christ? If disciples won't live under Christ's discipline, in what way are they disciples? If believers don't believe enough to do what he says, 
They're not believers. So today Jesus invites, indeed he commands, you, you, follow me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just don't ever run into hardly anything in life that is so absolute, that makes such absolute claims. We, we're so used to negotiating out a middle position somewhere. And so to hear your claims uh, rocks us back a bit. Give us the grace to not turn and run. But Lord, to come and follow, bringing everything we have, investing everything in you, doing whatever you say, knowing that because of who you are, because you are the great and mighty sovereign, because you are the gracious and good savior, our lives are well spent in your service. Oh Lord, grant us such grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.